Good morning. Listen, tis the season. I hear a lot of coughs out there. All right. So, yeah, it's the, it is the season. It may be unseasonably warm this morning, but it is still the Christmas season. And so I wore the sweater just to pay homage to the Christmas season, even, even though it's black. I know it doesn't count. But anyway, just continuing. This is, this is my history. Don't be surprised by it anymore. Um, anyway, it is the Christmas season, but we are not moving on to Christmas quite yet, sort of. Um, we are finishing up our series in Galatians. Today is the last week of our series in Galatians. We will finish the book today. Um, but it's not like this is not seasonal still. Uh, somebody mentioned this to me earlier this week. Um, I was like, yeah, well, they're like, are we starting Christmas? I was like, no, it's still Galatians. And they're like, isn't that still sort of Christmas though? Like, isn't it all, isn't it all the same? <laughs> Regardless of what season we're in, don't we preach Easter all the time? Don't we preach Christmas all the time? Because our faith and our life centers around the work of Jesus Christ and what he means for us. And so this is a perfect way to really even kick off the Christmas season. Because in fact, this is, as we look at Galatians, we look at the gospel and the freedom that we have, this is the reason for the season. All right, I know you hear that phrase all the time. I put that phrase in my notes, the reason for the season, and I did it all in red and green letters, alternating like Christmas lights at the top of my notes. All right, this is the reason for the season. This is the central message of Christianity. This is the reason that Jesus came. Jesus came to set us free. And we need to understand what that freedom is and how we walk in it, how we receive it, and also how we live in it. And so if you've never heard the good news before, I want to share it with you right out of the gate today. Because in our world and our culture, we are surrounded by a lot of Christian-ish things. And we're surrounded by a lot of Christian-like ideas or things that stem out of Christianity. And it's easy for us to develop a picture of who Jesus was and what faith is and what salvation is all about based on what other people have told us, based on what we see in the media or in movies or what we hear in songs or what we're told by politicians or other thought leaders in our world or influencers. It's easy to develop an idea of what faith is, what salvation is, who Jesus is, who God is, based on all of that stuff. But I'm just gonna go ahead and tell you, if you you base your idea of who God is or who Jesus is by what everyone else says of him, they will get it wrong ultimately. And if you base it just on what I say about him, ultimately I will get some things wrong too. Our goal, our desire as believers is to base what we believe about Jesus and what we believe about God on the scripture and the scripture itself. And when we base it on the scripture and we truly study and look into it and understand it the way it's supposed to be understood, we will get an accurate picture of God, an accurate picture of Jesus and what it means to become a child of God, how that works and how we stay in fellowship with him. And so go to the scripture first and foremost and anybody that you're allowing to influence you, make sure they are going to the scripture as well. Because here is the good news, regardless of what you may have heard from other people, here's the good news. Well, it starts with bad news. <laughs> the bad news is you and I are sinful. All of us are. We've all sinned and we've all fallen short of the glory of God. There's nobody who is exempt from that. All of us. And God shows as he began to develop his people, we, we fell, we sinned, and we continue to sin. God began by developing his people, the nation of Israel, to show them, to start teaching them about what life is supposed to be and who they're supposed to be and how God looks at them and how they're supposed to look at God. And what you see in the Old Testament law as it's given to them, the Ten Commandments and then everything else that was added along with it, as you look at the law and you look at the people of God, what he was showing them 
the, he set up all these rules. And you look at these rules in the Old Testament law, and you look at them, and you go, there's no way we could keep it. There's no way you look at the Ten Commandments. There's no way I could keep all of the Ten Commandments perfectly through my entire life. Yeah, that's the point. God wanted to give them and show them what his, what his desires were and what the kind of life he expected them to live were. And the point of the law was that they would see that they could never live up to it. And so also in the law, he gave them a system of sacrifices. And the system of sacrifices showed them that God, that there is a punishment and a consequence for sin. And the punishment for sin has to be paid. Sin has to be atoned for. But the problem is the system of sacrifices that he gave them to follow were never going to be adequate to cover the sins that they committed. They did what he asked them to do, but the point of the whole thing was to show them that we are sinful. We can't keep the law perfectly. We fall short. We need an atonement. We need a payment for our sins in order to be right before God. But they, for years and years and years and generations, were looking forward, looking forward to the Messiah, to Messiah who would come and who would do that, who would, who would atone for sins and will cover their sin. And so they were looking forward. And a lot of the Christmas songs that you hear are about that, looking forward, looking forward, right? Well, we know that God in his mercy sent his one and only son, Jesus. And Jesus came to, life, came to earth, fully God and fully man. That's what we celebrate on Christmas, the incarnation, God in the flesh. He came to earth and he lived without sin. He kept the law perfectly. And then offered himself on the cross in our place. He said, you can't do it, but I can. And if you give me your sin, I will give you my righteousness. That's the offer. And so he gave his life on the cross, paying for sin. He was placed into a tomb, and on the third day, he rose again back to life, proving he has power over sin and death because he is the son of God. Yeah, I agree. And what does that mean for us? Here's what it means. And this is what Galatians really gets into. This is, what, this is the reason Paul wrote this letter to the Galatians because he had come to them and he had told them this, this good news. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, gave his life on the cross on your behalf. And it is not by any work you have done, not by any effort, not by any law keeping, not in spite of any law breaking, it's, it's not because you were worthy or you were good enough or you kept enough of the commandments or you got above this arbitrary line of holiness that is set out here somewhere. It's not that you were a good enough person. That's not why you can be saved. That can't get you to him. What Paul told the Galatians when he showed up, these were people who were not Jews. They didn't follow the law their entire life. They followed pagan religions. And all of a sudden he shows up and he says, Jesus is for you too. But you don't have to now do all of these things. You don't have to become Jewish. You don't have to get circumcised. You don't have to observe the feasts and the festivals and the sacrifices. You don't have to keep the Ten Commandments. You don't have to do any of that stuff in order to be saved. All you have to do is put your faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus told us the good news was. He said, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Jesus said this about himself. That God gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in me shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And so Paul comes to the Galatians and he says, all you have to do is trust Jesus for salvation and you can be saved. You can be justified before God. And you don't have to become Jewish and you don't have to keep all of these rules. What you have to do, you receive the spirit and then you make the choice to walk with him. 
to walk in faithfulness to him in the freedom that you have. That's what he told the Galatians. And then, and that's the truth. So I want you to hear that before we, before we go on today. If you're looking at God and you're saying, I feel like I haven't been a good enough person, I've been too bad, or I haven't kept enough of the rules, or I don't qualify for salvation, that is the world and yourself and your heart and your sin telling you that. It is not God telling you that. God stands with open arms in front of you and will receive you right now. If you say, I believe in Jesus, I put my faith in Jesus for salvation today, he will receive you and he will justify you through Jesus' blood. Not any of your work, nothing you've done, good or bad. He will forgive you of your sin and welcome you into his family today. It's that simple. And so Paul told this to the Galatians. But then after he left, these other people came in and started telling the the Christians, the now Christians in Galatia, these Gentile Christians, that what Paul told them wasn't true. That actually they do have to go back and do, they have to become Jewish. They have to do all of these things. They have to submit themselves to the law. And that just got Paul all all kinds of worked up. (laughs) He was mad because it's not true. It's not true. It's not your work or my work that saves us in the first place. We're incapable of doing that. It's not your work or my work that keeps us saved. We're incapable of doing that, right? If, if, If keeping my salvation were based on my behavior, I would have lost it the day that I got it. The, my salvation is secured by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. And it is held by the grace of God through faith in Jesus. This is what Paul told them. And, and someone else came in and told them otherwise and, and, and put a crack in their foundation of their faith, told them that they weren't good enough. And basically what happened, and we've talked a lot about this in the series, but the reason those people did that is because those people were putting themselves up on a pedestal and pushing these other believers, these other Gentile believers down and trying to put them in their place because they're creating this, so, this religious hierarchy or ladder or rung or ranking system or whatever. And that's just garbage. That's not the way God works. It's not how our relationship with him works. We are to run the race that's set out for us. We are to walk in the spirit and to follow him and let the spirit lead us to higher levels of holiness than any kind of law could ever hold us. And we are responsible for our walk and our faith. And so he told them all of this. He explained all of this to them. And his hope is that they will finally get this and they will finally walk according to this truth, the good news. And so I just want you to know that and hear that before we even get into the scripture today, that you can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ, by the grace of God, and not of your works. And so there's nothing that's keeping you from doing that. And you can walk in the grace of God every single day, even as we fail, even as we fall, knowing that our foundation is secure. So I want you to know that and hear that right out of the gate. All right, so as we get into the the final part of this letter today, we're in Galatians chapter six, picking up in verse 11. Paul is going to put an exclamation point on this entire letter. And so that's what we're going to do today, too. All right, Galatians chapter 6, verse 11. See with what large letters I have written to you with my own hand. Now, this is, a, uh, this is interesting, and we're going to take a minute here to understand what he's saying. Um, so it's a cultural thing, a thing at the time. Um, very often when you were writing a letter like this, you would not write the letter yourself. Okay, you, would, you would dictate the letter to someone else, and they would write it. Uh, interestingly, this is how my, uh, my mom and dad met. Yeah, this is the story of Doug and Donna and their deep abiding love for one another. <laughs> my, dad, they, my dad and uh, mom were in college together at um, Philadelphia College of Bible, which is in um, 
well, Philadelphia. And um, my dad was, uh, this is before he went to seminary, this is my dad, uh, was the uh, Senate body president, so for his class, and he had a lot of very important work to do, I'm sure. And uh, so he was the, the Senate body president and apparently had caught the eye of a young freshman, uh, arts major named Donna. And Donna found out that he was the Senate body president and found out that uh, apparently they needed a little bit of secretarial help in the Senate office on campus. And so she decided to volunteer for that job. Now, if you ask my dad, that job did not exist. <laughs> and, and Donna created that job as a volunteer and suggested that maybe they did need some secretarial help. And so she showed up to her first day as the secretary for the Senate and plopped herself right down in the seat across from my dad with a notebook in her hands. And she said, what can I dictate for you? And he didn't know what to do with that. And so he dictated a couple of memos to her and she wrote them down and she took them and distributed them and she was in. So in our case, it was Donna that was the, not aggressor's not the right word, uh, the, the assertive one. She took the initiative and so she would dictate things. That was part of her job was to dictate memos and notes and things and then get them out to people. So at the time that Paul is writing this, it's a very common practice. They had a word for somebody who would do this. The word was amanuensis. So oftentimes, and Paul had an amanuensis for many of his letters. For example, Romans, his amanuensis was a man named Tertius. And it, we know that because it says so at the end of the, the book. And we read that when we did our Roman study um, last year. Um, and so, and actually, this is interesting because we know the authors of the scripture, right? We know uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Peter, Paul, right? They, uh, James, they all wrote parts of scripture. Um, Tertius also is an author of scripture. He got one line because <laughs> at the end of Romans, Paul let Tertius put his own greeting in there. And so it says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, send greetings to you in the Lord. So that's, that was his line, but he, he got one line there. But this was a common practice that they would use. And so Paul used an amanuensis um, on, or someone to dictate to on this letter. And that person, we don't know who it is, but they wrote the vast majority of Galatians. Everything that we've read up to this point, they were the ones who penned and actually wrote it down. Now, why did Paul use an amanuensis? It was kind of culturally appropriate. Also, we believe that he had issues with his eyes. We've talked about that throughout the series. So he may have had a, and he says here, look, because this is where, at this, this last part, Okay, this last part, Paul writes himself. It's so important to him that he writes it down himself and he says, look at the big letters that I'm using. All right, why big letters? Again, maybe it's the eyesight issue. Maybe he had issues with his hands. He had at this point been persecuted very, very badly. And so that he might've had issues with his hands and his ability to write or his motor skills or other things like that. Um, also at this point, Paul is most likely over 40 years old. And they didn't have reading glasses. <laughs> so it's possible that he just couldn't see that well for that reason. Some of you could totally relate to that. You're like, if I took my readers off, I'm not sure that I would be. I'd have to write in some big letters too. So, but anyway, the point is, Paul gets to the end of this letter. He's been using this amanuensis through the entire thing. And right here, he says, now, this is so important. He's going to punctuate it. This is so important. I'm writing this myself. And you can see how big the letters are. This was not easy for me to do, but it's important for him to do this. So pay attention as we read, all right? These are big letters for a big letter, 
Galatians chapter 6, verse 12. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would, and he's talking, pause, he's talking about the Judaizers who come in and have confused them and told them they have to add works to their faith. As many as desire to make a good showing in the flesh, these would compel you to be circumcised, only that they may not suffer persecution for the cross of Christ. For not even those who are circumcised keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. So Paul's reiterating what he's already said in this letter. He said, the Judaizers, the ones who are telling you, you have to add works to your faith. These people are doing it because they have selfish motives. They're doing it because they're trying to appease the Jews and they're trying to avoid persecution, the persecution that Paul himself had faced, had on. And so you can't trust them. You can't trust them because they are only doing what is going to lift them up and provide them safety and security and peace and all of that. So they're doing this, they're, they're, they're uh, coalescing to the, to the Jews so they're not persecuted by them, them. And they're only doing this to you so that they can lift themselves up. In a way, he's almost saying so they can pad their stats. <laughs> you know, so they can boast in you. So they can say, well, look at these people that we taught, that we trained, that we converted, that we whatever, when Paul had already given them the gospel. You can't trust them. Their motives are selfish. They're playing a hypocritical religious game. He said, they're telling you to follow the law. They can't even follow it. Neither can you. And they're, they're building themselves up through forced obedience. Frankly, what they're doing to the people in Galatia is gross. It's gross and it's selfish and it is just, I don't know. All I can think is gross. Yuck. Like it's, it, 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 it just, it feels, you can, can you feel what they're doing to them? It just feels wrong. It feels, uh, I don't know. I don't know what the word is. I gotta move on. All right. So, uh, we need to be on the lookout for this. We need to, here's, here's part of what discernment is. Discernment is being able to sense that grossness. Okay. It's when, it's when somebody is trying to teach you or trying to influence you, having the spiritual discernment to hear it and be like, ooh, something's not right about this. Something doesn't feel right. This, I, I don't, and that, that, is a, that is a spiritually discerned thing where I think God gives us a little window into the, even though we can't see someone's motives, gives us a little window into the motives based on what they're saying or how they're saying it. Or, or really the, the black and white of it comes from knowing the scripture really, really well. And then when somebody says something to us that we know is not what the scripture says, our radar, you know, the, the red light goes off in our head. And we go, ooh, I don't know about this. And, and anytime that you get that feeling that, I don't know, just be very cautious be very aware and very cautious and then hold whatever that person is saying up against scripture and see if it, uh, if it passes the, the test, okay? It's like the sniff test, right? Does it just, this doesn't smell right, you know? So we need to build our discernment so that we understand and that comes from knowing the scripture better and better. He's like, watch out for these people. They, they, they look, they look like they are, these Judaizers, they look like they're succeeding, they look like they're succeeding because they have the praise of the Jews and they have the praise of all of these people because they're not getting persecuted. These people must be winning. But the thing is, faithfulness in Christ, winning doesn't always look like winning. Sometimes when it looks like we're winning, we're actually losing because there is persecution. There is trouble that comes against the gospel. So don't mistake worldly success for spiritual success. Don't look at... at 
at teachers or influencers or other people in this world and say, wow, look at what they have going on and think that just because there's worldly success, that there's spiritual success there. We need to look at a deeper level. Also, don't make the mistake of thinking that persecution in and of itself means that somebody is being faithful. So sometimes we can, we can make that mistake too on the other side of things. We can be like, well, if they're being persecuted, they must be doing the right thing. Not necessarily, <laughs> all right? We're looking for faithfulness. We need to not look at those other things, those leaf issues. We need to, we're asking the spirit to show us what's actually going on behind the surface in someone's heart, their motives and all of that. He's saying, watch out. And in grace, we define success and maturity differently than the world. So don't assess it that way. All right, verse 14. But God forbid that I should boast. He just said that the Judaizers were boasting in their, their converts, right? God forbid that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ by whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. This is so beautiful. Paul's saying, the only boast I have, the only thing I'm going to hang my hat on is the cross of Jesus. That's it. I brought nothing here. I brought nothing here. I bring nothing here. I will boast in absolutely nothing except the cross of Jesus. I don't love the world, and I don't pursue the things of the world. They've been crucified to me. They're no longer of value. And the world does not love me. And the world did not love Paul. The world did not love Paul. The, the powers of the world, the people who were in authority, the people who had the influence, the people who had the money, the people who had the fame, the people who had all the stuff, they persecuted Paul. They persecuted him because he wouldn't play their game. He wouldn't follow their expectations. He wouldn't tow the societal line. He just shared the gospel no matter what. And he said, that is where I owe my debt of gratitude is to the cross of Christ. And I will stay connected to the cross of Christ. And the world has been crucified to me and I've been crucified to the world. But the only thing that I will boast in is Jesus. He is all that is good. He wouldn't play by the world's rules. Paul said, I'm gonna be transformed. See, works-based righteousness causes us to boast in ourselves by comparison. But faith-based righteousness causes us to boast in Christ, in humility. That is where we're supposed to live. That is where we're supposed to walk, humbly at the foot of the cross. Not boasting in ourselves and not boasting in anyone else, but boasting only in the cross of Christ who, where we were saved. Not thinking too highly of ourselves than we ought, but loving God with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength and loving our neighbor as ourselves. Humbly at the foot of the cross. I was reading, I was reading and studying this week, I came across a um, famous, well-known um, hymn by Isaac Watts, uh, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. And the verses of this song are so beautiful. And uh, I was going to try and uh, have the band play it, but it was Thursday. And I was like, I'm not going to do that to Jimmy Miller. <laughs> And I had his bass anyway, so he couldn't practice it. <laughs> I just want to read you the words of this song. And I just want you to hear the depth behind this. This is, this is our heart. When I survey the wondrous cross, 
where the young prince of glory died. My richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? His dying crimson, like a robe, spreads o'er his body on the tree. Then am I dead to all the globe, and all the globe is dead to me. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. This is, this is what we're talking about. This is what Paul is talking about as believers. Recognizing that we haven't brought anything to him except ourselves. Trusting in Jesus for salvation. And then trusting him to lead us as we walk. Humbly and in love. Not condemning, judging, comparing. Not putting each other down so we can be lifted up but all standing on level ground together at the foot of the cross, saying we are so thankful for what Jesus has done for us, and we want our life to look like his. So lead us in the Spirit. We will walk in the Spirit. We will learn what it means to be a child of God. And religious works, religious systems don't produce in us what God wants to produce in us. He wants to produce transformation, and that happens in the Spirit. All right, so um, going into verse 16, he says, so he's laid all this out, and he says, as many as walk according to this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. He said, so if you walk according to this rule. Now, when I first read this, my first thought is rule is to compare this with the law. So like, oh, well, the law has rules, and so this is the new rule. No, that's not actually what he's saying. He doesn't use that word here. He uses a different word than he uses when he's talking about the law or a commandment. This word, we, we hear rule in English. There's a little bit of a lost meaning here. What he is saying is the word ruler. Like a foot long with 12 inches or, or you know, I don't know how long a ruler is in centimeters. But anyway, right? He, sa- he says a ruler. Any of you who live according to this ruler, this measurement Any of you who decide to measure yourself this way. See, what what religion does and what legalism does is it gives us a ruler to measure ourselves and to measure other people. And he said, no, the ruler is, the measurement is righteousness in Christ. So So if I walk as a child who has been made righteous through Christ... If I do it without comparing, without contrasting, without feeling like I fail, if I, if I walk in freedom and I walk in joy, then this is what he wants to see. He says, anyone who walks according to this rule, measuring themselves this way, peace and mercy be upon them. This, is, this mentality is so important because this is how we walk with peace and mercy. Peace with God, mercy with others, This is how we walk graciously. This is how we walk humbly. It's making sure we have the right understanding of who God is and how he saved us and what our relationship with him is like. 
This is the key to experiencing peace and mercy. And if you, if you turn to religion and you try to live religiously by a set of rules and compare and contrast and do all that kind of stuff, then you're just going to live with fear and shame, not with peace and mercy. All right, so we've got to walk the right way. And he says, uh, mercy upon anybody who walks that way and upon the Israel of God. Now, the wording here indicates, some people have said that he's calling the church the Israel of God here. He's not. The wording here indicates that he's talking about a second group of people. So he is talking about Israel, Israel. He's talking about the Jews. And he doesn't want us to think in all of this conversation about the law and freedom and all this and the Judaizers. He doesn't want us to think that he's diminishing or demeaning Israel because God is still not done with them. God still has a plan for Israel. We talked a lot about that in our Roman series. All right, so that's what he's talking about there. Mercy on them as well. All right, and then verse 17. From now on, let no one trouble me. Which is kind of a funny phrase <laughs> when you think about it. All right, is this settled now? Can we, can we settle this? Can we, can we agree on this? Can we see that this is the truth so that I don't have to deal with this again? <laughs> let no one trouble me. For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord. So the word here he uses for marks, interesting, it's the word stigma. It's the word stigma in, in Greek. It's where we get the word stigmata. You ever heard of that? You ever heard of stigmata? You ever seen the movie? Don't. Anyway, the stigmata is the phenomenon that's been recorded through history of when somebody in their relationship with God or for whatever reason miraculously receives the marks of the Lord. And so you'll see at times pictures of somebody who has like red marks on their hands or, uh, or around their head. You particularly see this in the, the Catholic church um, or it marks in their feet or wound in their side or other things. And you, you know, if you Google it, you can see pictures. I wouldn't, but you can see pictures of people that have this. All right, and this is the idea of bearing the marks of the Lord. All right, so people say they received the stigmata. Um, this is one of those things where I would just humbly tell you to use discernment as you think about that idea. Um, there's a couple problems with this phenomenon of the stigmata. Um, first and foremost, it never showed up in history until the 1200s. So no, no recorded cases of this ever until the 1200s, um, which is a little suspicious. And also, this is the biggest problem. When you see people who supposedly have the stigmata, the hole is in the middle of their hand. Uh, that is not where Jesus was crucified. So if you, if you look into Roman history and how they crucified, they did not nail through the hand. It, 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 that comes from a misinterpretation of John. When John records, he uses a word that can mean hand, but the word just means it's everything from your elbow down. So it's your forearm. So really it should be translated, Jesus was nailed in his forearm, most likely, and I don't want to be graphic about this, but the point of crucifixion was to hang somebody up and then eventually they would asphyxiate or suffocate under their own body weight. They couldn't hold their legs up anymore. They would hang by their arms and then they would suffocate under the, the weight of their own body. Um, if you nailed through the hands, that would not hold your body up. Okay? <laughs> like I said, I don't want to be graphic, but the, 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 the way that they crucified was to nail through the wrist. All right, they would right in between the radius and the ulna is where Jesus was crucified. So when you see somebody who has the stigmata and it's in their hands, I don't know why 
God would do that. So um, just use your discernment on that kind of stuff. Now, when, when Paul says, I've received in my body the marks of the Lord, there have been people who said, oh, he received the stigmata. No, that's not how he used the word. That's not how they use the word. In their culture, that word meant something very specific. Stigma or stigma was the mark that someone would put on someone else when they owned them. It's the mark that a master would put on a slave. It's the mark that a commander or a general would put on a soldier who belonged to them. It was a brand or a cutting or something like that. It had a very intense meaning to them. And I know we don't want to think about those kinds of things, but that was a reality for them in their world and culture. And Paul says, I have received in my body the marks of the Lord. He has made his impression on me. And in this case, I think he's even referencing the physical, the, the whip marks that he would have had, the disfigurement he had because of the persecution he was facing. And what is he trying to do? He's trying to get them to look at these Judaizers who are coming in and influencing them. And he said, you see, they're trying to get out of persecution. You see that they are going the easy road and appeasing the Jews over here. And I want you to know that I have stuck to the gospel. And for that, I have received the marks of Jesus. I have been willing, this is so important to me, that I have been willing to face beatings and persecution and stonings and all of it to make sure that the true message of the gospel gets out. And so you can trust me. This is true. I would not sacrifice in this way if this were not true. And if Christ hadn't told me what he told me. Let no one trouble me. Can we settle this? Can we agree? Can we believe everything that I've said here? Everything that he taught you? Can you believe it? For I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And then last, verse 18. Brethren, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Amen. That's what he wants. When Paul wrote this, that's what he wanted. He wanted the grace of Jesus to be with their spirit that they would receive grace, that they would walk in grace. And actually, there's a little bit of an order change here in English. The last word he actually says is the word brethren. It's flipped in the English translation. But the last word he actually wrote, what he said was, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren, brothers, sisters. And you can see Paul's love and passion coming through this letter. He doesn't want them to be deceived. He doesn't want them to be distracted. He doesn't want them to walk in fear. He doesn't want them to walk in shame. He doesn't want them to be insecure. He doesn't want them to look at God like we've talked about in the series, like a judge on the stand, ready to dole out a punishment. He wants them to walk in the grace of God, confidently, lovingly, with God, Abba, Father, and knowing that they walk every single day in his grace and that God is calling them in the spirit to produce fruit, good fruit. To produce the image of Christ, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is what Paul wants for the Galatians. He loves them with all his heart. And it's what God wants for you too and for me. 
God loves us, and he has a plan for our life, a way he wants us to live, a way he's designed us to live. And he wants us to walk freely and openly in that plan. So we'll finish today by telling you the same thing that Paul said to them. Let the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you have shared with us who you are, who we are, and how you've established a relationship with us. We thank you that in your grace you sent your son, Jesus, that even while we are sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus, you gave your life for us on the cross in our place. And we know that you rose again on the third day in power and victory. And we understand that there is nothing we can do to earn our way to you. We can't climb the mountain high enough. We can't climb high enough on the ladder only to come to your feet. To come to your feet, Jesus, and to receive your grace through faith. Father, I pray that you move someone today to do that for the first time, to put their trust in Jesus for salvation and his death and resurrection. And God, for us as we walk, we are, we are truly humbled. We're humbled to know that we're your children, that you would love us in the way you have. We're humbled, Jesus, that you would come, that you would come and serve us. You'd set models of service, washing the disciples' feet and caring for people and healing people, and that you would do all of that. That every single day you walk with us, Spirit, you lead us. He'd walk us into your will for our life. And so we, we open ourselves up to that. And because of your goodness and because of your love and because we know we're your children, because we know that can't be shaken, we now choose to walk in the Spirit. As you teach us in your word what your desire for us is. And we respond in obedience and we respond in submission, not because we have to in order to earn something, but because we want to show you how much we love you. Because we want to walk in what you created us for. And so we freely and willingly do that. And we thank you for your continued leadership, your continued guidance and teaching as you open up our hearts and minds to see what is true versus what is a lie, to see what is pure versus what is corrupted, to see what is of the spirit versus what is of the flesh. And so we thank you for continuing to walk with us in that. And Father, we want to demonstrate our commitment to you. 
in this day, by the decisions that we make and everything that we do while we're together, we wanna show you that we love you and trust you and follow you. And we'll do that now. Lord, we're gonna take communion together in this moment, something Jesus, you demonstrated for us and that we're encouraged to continue doing, to remember your body, which was given for us by eating bread, by remembering your blood, which was shed for us by drinking from the cup. And as we do this together, I pray, God, that you would be honored. You would see the, the, the true attitude of our heart that we're saying to you with our action. Father, we love you and we believe and our trust and faith is in Jesus, our King, and in him alone. It's in your name we pray, amen.